I'm going to invite you this morning to open your copy of God's perfect word to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. If you could meet anyone, anyone, if you could meet anyone, who would it be? It's a hero of yours or someone from childhood that you've idolized, someone that you'd love to introduce yourself to and interact with. Who, who would that be for you? As I was growing up, don't hold this against me, but I've been a lifelong, avid Ohio State University fan. Now, in Ohio State folklore, one of the coaches that will go down in history is a man named Jim Tressel. Jim Tressel is a former Ohio State head football coach, and I grew up with him as kind of the leader of the Ohio State football team. And in my family, this man was borderline idolized as a hero of Ohio State football. He had led them to a national championship. He had led them to several, several victories over Ohio State's rival. This man was going down in history as one of the Ohio State greats. Now, when I was my junior year of high school, my family received news that this man, Jim Tressel, was coming to our hometown for a speaking engagement. My family quickly found a way that they could to get there because wanted desperately to meet this man, Jim Tressel. Wanted to meet him. Just wanted to introduce ourselves, say that we had talked to this man who we respected so much. And to my horror, I discovered that while the entirety of my family was going to be able to attend, I had something that I was out of town for. It was impossible for me to be there and uh, was horrified. But my family goes to this event. I'm in another state and they get to meet Jim Tressel. They get things autographed by him. This is an incredible experience. I'm in North Carolina and I get a call right about when everything is supposed to wrap up and figuring this is my, this is my mom calling to tell us how it went. And so, look, mom is calling, answer the phone. Hi, mom. And uh, on the other side of the line, I hear, hello, Adam. This is Jim Tressel, football coach at The Ohio State University. So I pull my phone away and double check. It still said mom. And uh, my, my mother, my sweet mother, she's, she's one of those ladies, even Jim Tressel comes at her bidding. And uh, so <laughs> I'm in shock, I'm in horror. The, the, a very distinct voice, no doubt in my mind, this, this, is, this is the man, this is Jim Tressel, and he's calling me. And so uh, what, what do you say? You say, hi, <laughs> how, how are you? He goes, great. And so we talk for just a minute. And I'll never, never forget that conversation. Never forget it. So the, the conversation takes place talking to Jim Tressel, childhood hero, and hang up the phone after it's done. And my friends are standing around me and they say, who is that? <laughs> and uh, Jim Tressel, right? Now, they didn't know who he was. So... <laughs> This is just awesome, incredible experience in my life. My friends don't even understand the significance of what just took place. But I'll tell you what, I will never, I will never forget that moment where this man that I respected so much took just a moment to call me, say hi. That, that conversation will live on for the rest of my life. We all have individuals. For me, it was a man like Jim Tressel that we would love to meet, love to interact with, love to have a conversation with. We're going to find a text this morning in Exodus chapter 33 where Moses gets to meet someone incredible. <laughs> Moses is going to meet God. He's face to face. He's, he's going to stand, look at, and interact with the God of the universe. Now, we, we all have these heroes that we want to talk to, but if we're going around the table talking about who the hero is that we want to meet with, who, who the most famous person that we've ever met with, and Moses is sitting at the table, Moses takes the cake. Moses meets with God. You cannot top that. Moses sits, stands, bows down, interacts with the God of the universe on top of a mountain. 
It's an incredible scene. So in Exodus chapter 33, we're gonna jump right into the middle of a story, of a narrative. Really, the narrative begins in the beginning of chapter 32. I wanna summarize really quick what happens between chapter 32 and where we're gonna enter the narrative halfway through chapter 33 so that we know what we're diving into. This is the scene where it all starts when Moses is on top of Mount Sinai with God. God is giving Moses the law. So the two tablets, the Ten Commandments are being inscribed into the tablets. And at that point, Moses hears a horrific story of something that is happening down in the camp with Israel. Israel, while Moses is up on the mountain, has had a desire to express worship towards something and the only thing they could come up with was to create a golden calf. If you look at the beginning of chapter 32, many of your Bibles will have a heading, the golden calf. And that's what happens in this scene. They turn in their jewelry, they construct a calf, and Israel is bowing down, worshiping, singing to this golden calf. So God knows what is taking place as he is interacting with Moses. And God looks to Moses in chapter 32, verse 10, and he says, now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. God, in reaction to the sin of Israel, says, they're done. That's it. Because of what they've done, let me alone. I, my anger will burn against them and they will be destroyed. They've gone too far. And as Exodus chapter 32 plays out, Moses begins to plead, beg with God, God, don't destroy your people. Remember that they are your people. He asks God to recall to mind the promises that he made to Israel. He says, God, keep your promise. Please don't destroy your people. Moses is pleading, pleading with God through Exodus chapter 32, and then God agrees. He grants Moses' request. He says, okay, I, I won't destroy this people, but at that point, Moses' interaction with God comes to an end and Moses comes down the mountain. As he's coming down, he sees what's taking place in Israel and he, fury, takes the tablets, the Ten Commandments, he throws them at the foot of the mountain, they shatter. Moses comes into the camp. He actually calls all of the Levites to himself and orders the slaughter of thousands of Israelites, 3,000. 3,000 Israelites are slaughtered by the Levites as they go out by the sword, and Moses, as punishment for their sin, commands this. And then Moses, in chapter, end of chapter 32, he intercedes again for the people. He goes to God and says, we have sinned greatly, but please Forgive our sin. We've sinned against you, but God, please forgive us. And he, he, he says, as, he, as he's talking with God, he says, if you won't, if you can't do it, blot me out of your book. Forget whatever it takes. Forgive the Israelites for their sin. Whatever it takes. And God says to Moses, I cannot completely grant that request, that there are repercussions for sin that must take place. God, in verse 33 of chapter 32, says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. So those who have specifically taken place in this sin, God says, I'm blotting them out of my book. He doesn't let Moses take their place. He blots those out of their book. And then he says in verse 34, but go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go with you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish sin, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. So essentially what God does is he looks to Moses. He says, I will blot some of them out of my book but you need to keep going into the promised land. 
Note that God says, I will send my angel with you. But what's gonna become clear as this text unfolds is that God will no longer let his presence be with Israel. God has been present with Israel from the beginning in a unique and special way. And he says to Moses that I will no longer be with you in the same way. Look to 30, chapter 33, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. What God is going to make clear is that his presence is no longer with them as they go and that he's going to punish Israel yet again for their sin. So Moses, again, starting in verse seven, starts to show this place called the tent of meeting that Moses had. This unique place outside of the camp where Moses could go and talk, verse 11 tells us, face to face with God like a man would talk to his friend. So Moses goes there and pleads with God yet again. He responds to what we see in verse five. God is speaking here. You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. God says, if if I'm even in your presence for one more moment, I'm going to destroy you. So go up. I will send my angel to protect you, but I will not be with you. And Moses then goes to God again, and he pleads with God. He says, God, if you can't go with us, if you don't go with us, don't send us. We don't want to go without you based on the glory of your name. Only, only will they know that we are of you if your presence is abiding with us. So do not send us without your presence. Moses illustrates this desperate desire for God's presence as he says, do not send us without you. Look to verse 15 of chapter 33 where Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. We need you, God. It's on the tail of that, this just roller coaster of events is happening, of sin and repentance and forgiveness, but still God's justice playing through, Moses being angry and trying to interact with God to account for the people's sins. This roller coaster of events that we come to Exodus chapter 33, verse 17, where God says this The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. The request that God would remain with them. God says, I will do this thing which you have spoken for you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will have compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Into verse 30, chapter 34. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he, Moses, cut two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai. As the Lord had commanded him, And he took his two stone tablets in his hand. Verse five. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. 
The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray. Let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. An incredible scene that plays out on Mount Sinai. Moses has this encounter with God, this fascinating, unexpected, unimaginable encounter with God. And from this meeting, I think that you and I can find five lessons in glory. Five lessons in glory. So this morning specifically, five lessons in glory from Moses' encounter with God. Five lessons in glory from Moses' encounter with God. Okay, so turn back to chapter 33, verse 17. Remember, Moses has just requested that God would accompany the people into the promised land, that his presence would abide with them in the same way that it had. And God says, I will do this thing which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. So Moses makes this request, and on the basis of Moses' righteousness, on the basis of the fact that he had found favor in the eyes of God, God grants this request. Understand, with, with the events that have transpired, this, this is incredible that God has just given, that he has granted this request. He, he, he has relented from his wrath. He's taken back the punishment that he said he would give to Israel after God said, I can't bear to be in their presence. If I am with them, I will destroy them. After he says that, now he's going to accompany them into the promised land. This is incredible territory. So you ask, how then does Moses respond to this gift from God? God is going to stay with his people even though they don't deserve it. How does Moses respond? Does he fall to his knees praising God? Is it just utter thanksgiving that comes from his lips? Is it worship? How does Moses respond to this incredible gift from God? The answer is in verse 18. Look at what Moses says. God says, I will grant this. In verse 18, Moses, then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. What, what is Moses doing here? How, what, what kind of a response is that? That after all that God has just done, after the forgiveness that God has just granted him, then Moses responds, God, I need more. Show me your glory. He comes up with another demand. Like, where does Moses come up with the audacity to continue asking God for these things? God, show me your glory? I mean, I mean if anyone, if anyone had seen the glory of God, it was Moses. If anyone had tasted what God's glory looks like, it was this man. This is the one who, when he is born, law is declared that says all of the newborns are to be slaughtered. He gets placed in a basket, sent into the Nile River, and ends up in Pharaoh's house. Years later, this is the man who has to leave Egypt, climbs the mountain, God in a burning bush. <laughs> 
talking to Moses. If, if anyone has seen the glory of God, it's Moses. His rod is turned into a serpent. Takes his hand, puts it in his shirt, pulls it out. Leprosy, puts it back in, pulls it back out again. Leprosy is gone. God's just showing his glory to Moses, just showing his strength and his power to Moses. Moses goes back to Egypt. (laughs) Ten plagues come down on Egypt at the bidding of Moses' word. God is just showing how glorious he is, how strong and how powerful he is. If anyone had seen the glory of God, it is Moses. But, but his life keeps going, right? He leads the people of Egypt out. Uh, he lives, le- leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. They go, they're running, and they come to the Red Sea. Red Sea parts. Ground is dry. Walls of water. And he leads the people of Israel. If anyone has seen the glory of God, Moses has seen the glory of God. Israel is wandering. They don't have any water. They come to water, but it's bitter. It's poisonous. They can't drink it. God turns it into sweet drinking water. Manna falls from heaven to feed all of Israel. Water coming out of a rock. Moses has seen the glory of God time and time again. So how does he then say, God, show me your glory? Where does that even come from? And it's here that we find this first lesson in glory. Number one, first lesson in glory that I think we see here is that a glimpse of God's glory leads to a desire for more. A glimpse of God's glory leads to a desire for more. Well, it may be natural to ask why Moses, who had experienced so much of God's glory, would ask to see more. The reality is this. Moses desired to see the God of glory because Moses had seen glimpses of the glory of God. Track with what's happening there. Moses desires to see more of God's glory because Moses has caught glimpses of God's glory. He has seen things in God. Most recently, his character has been revealed in forgiving sin that should not have been forgiven. But God forgives. And Moses says, I need to see more of who you are. Because as Moses saw God, he wanted more. He wanted to see more. That hunger that Moses had is the natural response that comes to seeing God's glory. As God is revealing himself, what should be building up in us is a desire to see and to know him more. Like Moses did to respond with, God, I want to see more of you. See, this request of Moses is not a request that replaced thanksgiving or worship. This is... (laughs) This is the most worshipful response that Moses could have had. Show me more of your glorious, glorious nature. Note that Moses' encounter with God led to a hunger for God. In the same way, in the same way for us, question becomes, do I hunger for God? Do I hunger and thirst after who he is? If the answer is no, I think what we see here is that the problem is not on God's part. The problem, if we do not have a hunger for God, is that we have not known him enough. Because as we grow to know God more, we want to know him more. It's it's a vicious, cycling, snowball effect where the more we see in him, the more we love him, and the more we want to see in him. That's what Moses expresses here. Show me your glory. And so God responds in verse 19. He says, I will make my, all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. In compassionate grace, God is going to let Moses see the entirety of his goodness, but not the entirety of his glory. As that plays out, God says, I will make all, all of my goodness to pass before you. 
All of my goodness is going to pass before you. You're going to see the entirety of the goodness of who I am, but you cannot look into my face. No man can look head on into my glory and live. So it's here that we come to our second lesson in glory, and that is that God's glory is deadly. God's glory is deadly. No man can see God's face and live. Now that term face, very similar to how God is going to refer to his back and in other places we see God's eyes, his ears, his nose, his hands referred to. These are human terms to try to ascribe, almost an illustration, certain aspects of God. So scripture tells us God is spirit. He doesn't actually have a face or a back or hands. He is spirit, but he uses this human terminology to kind of help us grasp exactly what he's saying here. So when he says, you cannot look into my face, what he is saying is you cannot look into the fullness of who I am. You cannot do that. You cannot look head on into the glory of God and live. Now think about that statement. No man can survive looking at God's glory. Like, we don't even have a category for that. To look at something and not being able to survive it. The closest thing I can even imagine is, is our sun, where we're not supposed to look at the sun because it's so bright. If you do enough damage, it, it'll do damage to your eyes if you look at it long enough. But this is, this is a whole new level. This is if you even catch a glimpse of God's glory head on, you die. You can't survive it. God's glory, absolutely supreme, unmatched. There is nothing like it. There is no even association in our minds for how glorious he is. To even observe it is to find death. God essentially teaches Moses a lesson. He says, Moses, you, though noble, you don't know what you're asking. That is a suicidal request. You cannot see me and live, but... In God's grace, he says, I will, I will allow all of my goodness to pass before you. But you can't handle, you can't handle all of my glory. You can't even look at it. So, so this, this is our God. Deadly in glory, unmatched, supreme. There is no one like our God, no one. His glory is literally deadly. But he still grants Moses' requests. As the scene plays out, jump into... In verse 21, he starts explaining, come up onto the mountain, there's going to be a rock, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will make my glory pass by you. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Verse 23, then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So into chapter 34, in verses 1 through 4, Moses prepares. He starts cutting out the tablets that God told him to cut out so that he could give him the law again. And then he ascends the mountain. In verse five, verse five, Moses is on the mountain and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. So Moses is on the mountain. Moses calling on the name of God, declaring the name of God and God in a cloud is descending to him. Now Moses at this point is in the cleft of the rock as verse six starts to play out. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. So God descends, Moses in the cleft of the rock, God passes by in front of him and then note, because you, you, you absolutely wonder what did Moses see? What did this look like? And as you read through this, we don't know. Moses doesn't tell us what he saw. Isn't that fascinating? He tells us what he heard. 
Nowhere do we see descriptors of the visual glory of God. All we hear is a description of his characteristic. We see a description of who God is. So, and what we start to see is that the revelation of God's glory is the proclamation of God's character. God is going to descend, walk in front of Moses, and start telling Moses who he is. He's going to start proclaiming his own character. God's glory is revealed through his character. So that brings us to this third lesson. Third lesson, God's glory is revealed in God's character. God's glory is revealed in God's character. Look to verse 6 as this plays out. The Lord passes by in front of him and proclaims the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He will yet by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And that's it. That's, that's what we see. That's what we're told about this encounter with God, is that God descends and declares his character to Moses. The glory of God is revealed in who he is. So let's examine briefly who he is. He introduces as God starts to speak to Moses, he says first, the Lord, the Lord God, setting the tone with with the overarching term that is used throughout the Old Testament for who God is, this is Yahweh. This is when in Exodus chapter three, verse 14, when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? God says, I am, Yahweh is sending you. Tell them Yahweh. And so, as, Mo, as he starts to describe, he, he introduces who he is, and then he starts to describe his characteristics. Number one, first one you see is that he is compassionate. I am the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. Now, what we're going to know as we go, we'll briefly just run through this list. These are very near synonyms. These are characteristics of the goodness of God. So we're going to see what, how God describes himself as a very full picture of complete goodness. Little different nuances in every word. We could make every one of these words an entire sermon contemplating this aspect of the character of God. We're just going to run through them briefly and note the entirety of coverage here in the goodness of God. He is compassionate. Compassion is to see someone in need, to feel sorry for, to feel sorrow for them, to care for them. In Psalm chapter 103, verse 13, The compassion of God is associated with the compassion that a father has towards his son. That relationship, that familial relationship that a father has towards his son that he doesn't have for other men's sons, that special relationship, compassion, just like a human father has that to his son on a perfect level, God is that, Psalm 103 says, to those who fear him. God is compassionate. He sees the need and he cares. Much like Christ who saw the crowds wandering as sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them. God is compassionate. He's also gracious. I am compassionate. I am gracious. These are all characteristics of God. God's grace, his bestowing gifts that are undeserved. These are attributes of God that Israel was desperately in need of. They had sinned against God. They were guilty. And God says, I am compassionate. I am gracious. He has shown forgiveness again and again. He continues, I am slow to anger. This is a, uh, this is a term implying patience, long-suffering. Pastor Rick has, has taught us that this is Literally, the Hebrew is long-nosed, that God is not quick to get angry. Though Israel was quick to sin, God was patient with them. So he is compassionate, he is gracious, he is slow to anger. And then the fourth descriptor is that he is abounding in loving kindness. Loving kindness, common Hebrew word, hesed. God's love, his mercy, his kindness. This is like if you were to put words to this attribute, this is the attribute of God that causes him to look at 
us and say, I love you. He is abounding in loving kindness. This is no small feature. Literally, the Hebrew is, he is much loving kindness, overflowing in loving kindness, and also abounding in truth. There's nothing false or misleading within him. He is completely true in all things that he says. He is reliable. What he says is complete truth. Who he is is complete truth. It is unchanging. And lastly, he is forgiving. The word literally means to lift something up. He is lifting sin, iniquity, and transgression. He is taking the burden of those sins and he is lifting them. He is forgiving. Of, he uses three different words for sin there. Sin, iniquity, transgression. All, every, there is no level of sin that God cannot forgive. He is a forgiving God. So you grasp the totality of this picture. He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, abounding in truth. Verse 7, he keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin sin but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished lest we hear that list of God's goodness and respond thinking as Israel so often did that sin is no big deal God says I will not leave the guilty unpunished He's shown that in this text. He has just recently blotted many out of his book because of their sin against him. And yet, he has shown all of his goodness, his grace, and his mercy, and that he did not destroy Israel, and that he is going to continue to accompany them. He has granted forgiveness. He has shown his justice. And we enter into the last half of verse 7. We enter into a very difficult part, which says that God is visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. What does this mean? That God is visiting the iniquity of fathers onto their children three and four generations later. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Based on the exegesis, exegesis of Jesus Christ in John chapter 9, this doesn't mean that children are condemned or punished for the sins of their parents. Remember, Jesus said, it's not because of this young man's father or mother's, si mother's sin that this young man is sick. Jesus is explaining what would have been a misunderstanding of this text, that the iniquity of fathers is felt on children. I think what God is saying here, what we see playing out here is not that God punishes children for the sins of their parents, but that children, grandchildren, generations later, feel the repercussions of sin. In essence, that sin, it's not, it's not insignificant. The repercussions of sin will still be felt. Yes, God is good. He is gracious, forgiving, loving, kind, merciful. He is good. But sin still has penalty. And there are children that will feel the impact. There are repercussions of sin that will echo throughout generations. It does not mean that those children are being punished for their parents' sin, but that the repercussions of parents' sin are felt. You cannot sin in a vacuum. It cannot be done. Your sin has an impact on those around you. So when you hear of the characteristics of the goodness of God, it's not an excuse. Note that Moses is not sitting here and saying, okay, but you're gracious, but you're also just, and you, sin has its penalties, but you're forgiving. How do those two meet? Look at how Moses responds. Verse 8, Moses makes haste to bow low towards the earth and worship. Moses doesn't get into an intellectual argument about the consistency of God. Moses falls to his face and worships the God that he just encountered. He has experienced the glory of God in a unique way and he is 
physically responding and worshiping God for what he has just seen. That brings us to our fourth lesson. An encounter with God's glory has physical repercussions. An encounter with God's glory has physical repercussions. You cannot encounter the glory of God and walk away unchanged. Cannot be done. Look at what happens to Moses after he watches this scene play out. I think we see multiple physical repercussions of this event. First, humility. Ultimate humility. Moses, his instant reaction, he makes haste. He hurries to the ground. With haste, he bows low. Moses is on his face, total humility, acknowledging complete unworthiness to be in the vicinity of God, bowing down before him. Moses is completely humble after experiencing this. Also, verse 8 makes clear, not only does humility, that's one of the physical repercussions, but also worship. Moses is worshiping God. What he has seen has left him to do nothing else but worship God for who he is. We don't know exactly what Moses said. Words may not have even been involved. But Moses is on his face worshiping the God that he has just encountered. It had physical repercussions. But jump down. It's a fascinating additional repercussion. Jump down to verse 29 of chapter 34. Verse 29. There's one more repercussion of his encounter with God's glory that we cannot ignore. Starting in verse 29 of chapter 24. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand and he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near him, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke with the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So Moses comes down off the mountain, and this is not a change in Moses' complexion. Moses' face is pouring out light. The Israelites look, and they're terrified. They won't approach him. Moses, if they want to talk to him, Moses has to go and grab a veil, put it over his face so that the people can even look him in the face. There is light pouring out of his face. Moses, because, text tells us, because he spoke with God, this is what happened. Now, this is not a, repli- a replicable scenario. This is, this is not our goal. Right? Our goal is not to have enough morning devotion so that light is pouring out of our face. This happened one time. One time in scripture. If nearness to God meant that light was going to pour out of your face, then Christ would have had light pouring out of his face for the entirety of his life. This was a sign. This was a physical repercussion of Moses' unique experience with God to where the Israelites look and they know in Moses that he saw the glory of God. He saw something in God that no man had ever seen and he did not walk away unchanged. So you hear that, and my tendency is to say, wow, how cool would it be to be Moses? Don't you just kind of wish that you could experience something like that? I mean, I think if I were to go up on a mountain and God were to descend before me and he were to declare his glory to me and I'm on my face worshiping him, you walk away a changed person. And I'm thinking, I come back and I'm more obedient. I'm spreading the gospel more. I'm going and I'm telling people, here's what I saw on the mountain. The tendency is to think, wish that we could 
encounter God in that way. Wish I could go through an experience like that. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is comparing the new covenant with the old covenant. And he's going to use Moses' encounter with God as the reference point. Watch what he does here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory... So much glory that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. Okay, so one second. He says, if the old covenant, which was engraved in stones, if that came with glory, so much glory that the sons of Israel couldn't even look at Moses' face. That's how much glory that came with. Look to verse 8. Verse 8 How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation, the law, has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory." Paul says this. Paul gives us the fifth lesson. Your encounter with God is more glorious than Moses. Your encounter with God is more glorious than Moses. You look at the comparison that Paul makes here. He says the old covenant was a ministry of death. This is the new covenant, which is the ministry of the spirit. Think about this. Essentially, here's what Paul is saying. Moses met with God. God is in you. Think about it. There's a comparison taking place here. Which is better? Moses got to meet God. Christian, God dwells in you. God is living inside of you. Your encounter with God is in a more personal, in a more direct, in a more glorious way than Moses ever had because this is the ministry of the Spirit who dwells within you. The old covenant was fading. The glory that the Israelites saw was glory coming from Moses' face, and Moses' face was fading, is what Paul says. Your ministry of the Spirit is eternal. And so, we look at the repercussions that Moses had when he encountered God. Understand that those are not out of our reach. You have encountered God in a more glorious way. For he dwells in those who believe. (laughs) That's incredible. That, That is unbelievable truth. Paul wraps it up in verse 18 where he says, we have every ability that Moses had and more. Look to verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. But we all, speaking of all believers, but we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So Paul says this, we have every ability that Moses had. Moses would take off the veil and go and talk with God We, with an unveiled face, behold the glory of God. We do that. 
We are able to behold the glory of God, but it is better in this way. Moses, when he beheld the glory of God, his face shone. We are transformed. When we behold the glory of God in verse 18, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory from the Lord. As we behold the glory of God, Moses' face changed. The entirety of who we are is transformed progressively more until we are ultimately glorified in heaven. So worship God. Praise God. Fall on your knees in complete humility that this God of deadly glory would dwell in us. How is, how is that possible? There's only one way. There's only one way that it's possible that God would dwell in us. And that's back in Exodus 33 where God says, I have compassion on whom I have compassion, and mercy on whom I have mercy. So praise God that he has had compassion on us. You pray with me. God, we do not deserve anything that you have given us. We don't deserve to behold your glory. We don't deserve for you to dwell within us. God, I pray that our reaction would be nothing less than to worship you in total humility, thankfulness, and have a desire to know you more, to see more of your glory. Father, make us, transform us into the likeness of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.